There are many things that I really like about Christmas, but one of the things I like the most is the lights. I don't actually like putting up our lights. I, I make sure that my wife has the tree in place and she does all that decorating. Actually, on the outside, I do the decorating. I put lights on the house. I put wreaths in the window that are lit up. I put lights along the sidewalk that line the entrance to our home. I love the lights of Christmas. And I think one of the reasons I do is because it is a constant reminder to me. When I drive into my community, Christ is King. The Messiah has come. Even though I don't really like putting up the lights, I like leaving them up. I'm one of those kind of people that probably would leave them up all the way through February if my wife would allow me to. I love looking at them because it reminds me of the miracle of Christmas, and I need that daily reminder. As a matter of fact, the miracle of Christmas is incredibly important. But what is equally important, or perhaps personally more important, is our response to Christ that is the Messiah, the one we celebrate at Christmas. The response is critical. This morning I want to consider uh, several responses to Christ as Messiah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the responses come primarily from Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2, and Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2. You know these stories well. One response was from a narcissistic king. His name, of course, was Herod. He was appointed by Rome to keep the peace. He was to do their bidding. He was, shall we say, their puppet. But he was also a very politically shrewd individual. He understood the Jewish nation that he ostensibly was the sovereign over, even though he was under the Roman Empire. He understood that to be a king and to have the accolades of the people He needed to work with the Sanhedrin, and he did work with the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious establishment in Israel. He worked with them, and he constructed the temple, which was as much in his honor, quite frankly, as it was to honor God. He actually reduced taxes. He created building projects. He made the people feel safe. This king, this narcissistic king, he would do anything to retain power. Anything. You know the rest of the story about how he ordered the killing of all children in Bethlehem under two years of age in order to find the king of the Jews that the wise man had spoken of. What you might not know is that King Herod had already killed a lot of people. As a matter of fact, he wasn't of a great Jewish pedigree. So he married a woman from the Maccabees, which made his pedigree, at least politically, slightly better. And as a matter of fact, he appointed his brother-in-law 
to be a priest, a high priest in Israel. However, his brother-in-law did such a good job that he was publicly acclaimed. And King Herod, well, he was angry about it. He was losing the attention. And so what did Herod do? He had his brother-in-law drowned. Later, he murdered his own wife, her mother, and three of his sons. That's why Caesar Augustus on one occasion said it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He refused to do anything to submit to anyone. As a matter of fact, at the end of his life, he constructed a plan because he knew he was so loathed by the people at that time. He constructed a plan that when he died, people would order executions that he had put into place before his death. And those executions would secure this hideous idea that when I die, said Herod, no one will mourn me. But when I die, there will be mourning. That's an insidious, narcissistic ruler. That's the first story of a response to Jesus as king. The second story of a response to Jesus as king is is the Magi. They came from the east. They were cultural elites. They were from the country or kingdom of Parthia. The Parthian kingdom had never been under the real conquest of Rome. Roman tried but never succeeded. And these three wise men, supposedly three, we don't really know. These wise men were not kings themselves, as some of our traditions have told us. They were actually philosophers, students, astrologers. They studied ancient manuscripts. They actually believed in a cosmology that included both good and evil. And at the end of time, they believed in an eschatological final conquest of evil. A conquest of evil that would come through a savior king. Isn't that interesting? We just finished the book of Revelation not more than a month ago. And it seems that their eschatology echoes in our ears. They were people from a priestly tribe, a caste system of priests. They probably learned about the birth of Jesus through reading the prophets. The prophets, no doubt, made their way into Parthia during the exile of Israel. And they were fascinated about the promise of a coming king. They also were not kings themselves, but they were king makers. They were powerful, they were respected, and they were feared. One has to wonder whether or not Herod feared them as well. They were foreigners from another religion, People who knew not so much about the Roman or Jewish culture. 
but people who were on a quest for the truth. I often wonder about their story. What, what happened to them? Did they go back to their country and announce the news? It doesn't appear that there was some sort of revival concerning the king of the Jews in Parthia. Perhaps they went back to their country and shortly after that passed away and kept the wisdom of the stories to themselves. The third person who gives us a response to Christ as king that I'd like to focus on just for a moment is Christ's mother, Mary. Hers is so different than the others. Hers is not words. It's quiet meditation. On at least two different occasions, we hear a description of Mary's response to her own son, Jesus. And on both those occasions, it says that Mary treasured these things or pondered them in her heart. The first reference to Mary treasuring these things or pondering them in her heart comes when the shepherds arrive at the manger scene. And they're talking about the angelic hosts and they're bowing down and worshiping Jesus. And it says that Mary just treasured these things in her heart. On another occasion, the same words are used when Jesus is found by his parents in the temple teaching the teachers going beyond what they knew and explaining the scriptures in ways they'd never conceived of. And when Mary saw it and perhaps listened briefly and heard his words, don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? She treasured those things in her heart. You know what that means? It means to allow the events of life which in her life was watching her son grow, allow those events to roll around in her mind. And as they rolled around in her mind, she undoubtedly, through treasuring them, asked God to help her understand them. The fourth response to Jesus comes in the form of two people. Two people who encountered Jesus, Mary and Joseph, at the temple when Jesus, as an infant, was brought there to be dedicated according to the practice of devout Jews. The first person we encounter in that setting is Simeon. Simeon, a devoted follower of God, who was at the temple more often than not. Simeon, the man who identified the Messiah as the two young people walked in with their child. Simeon, the one who took him into his arms and blessed him. Simeon's response was to bless the Messiah and to prophesy concerning his future and the future particularly of Mary. His prophecy concerning the future of Jesus was this person is going to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. In other words, as he reveals himself, a whole lot of people are going to rise up and understand who he is, and a whole lot of people are going to fall and misunderstand who he is. Two dramatically different responses. And his prophecy to Mary 
is that a sword is going to pierce your soul. Even though you have the delight of this young child, and perhaps we don't know, he knew some of the backstory concerning the coming of Christ in the manger. Or perhaps the story of the angel that visited Joseph and Mary. We we don't know. But he said, in spite of all that joy, a sword's going to pierce your soul. We know what that sword turns out to be. Of course, it's the sword of Jesus' crucifixion. But there was one other person at the temple as well, and her name was Anna. She was well advanced in years and had been a widow for many, many years, never remarried. It says that she literally lived at the temple. She may not have had a cot there, but the point is she hardly ever left. And she worshiped God constantly. And while worshiping God constantly, she encountered Mary and Joseph and the child who was the Messiah. Now think with me for a moment. In that court of the temple, there were no doubt hundreds if not thousands of people milling around. There were sacrifices taking place. There were people coming and going, people that were worshiping God. But only two people recognized the Messiah. And Anna was one of them. She saw the invisible deity in the Christ child. What lessons are there in these stories for us? Well, the first lesson is quite obvious, isn't it? We don't want to be Herod. None of us want to be Herod. But let me remind you of something. It's easy to vilify Herod. It's easy to look at characters in the New Testament that were against Jesus and say, I would never be that way. That's so easy because it's, it's a judgment. Let me remind you of one of Jesus' most poignant teachings. When he said that outward sins were manifest in the heart, And the manifestation in the heart might not seem so bad. In other words, the question is, what could have motivated this vicious murderer, this narcissistic king? Perhaps just this. Perhaps he was unwilling to ever lose to anyone his position of power. Perhaps this. He was unwilling to submit to anything. He was powerful and in control, and he would never submit to King Jesus. Obviously, we don't want to be like him. But are we? Do we have our moments? Are there times that the seeds of sin within our heart, though not murderous, are just as bad. At the baseline, Herod refused to submit to King Jesus. In other words, he refused to submit to God. 
God in the flesh. I'm reminded of our culture, my friends. Our culture is one that, unlike what some people would say, is quite religious. We have things we worship. We even have deities we call gods that we worship. But when it comes to the scriptures, the revelation of God, sometimes our culture or even we look at the God that's represented and we reshape him. You know what the Old Testament consistently called that? Idolatry. If the Old Testament God doesn't suit us, we reshape him into another God. If the demands of King Jesus are onerous to us, we reinterpret the mission of Jesus. No, we're not Herod. But we do have within us the possibility of, like Herod, refusing to submit to Christ the King. More subtly, perhaps, but still there. Let me remind you of this. When you encounter Jesus, you don't get to reinterpret him. You don't get to craft him into your own image. The only thing you get to do when you encounter God in Jesus Christ is to decide whether or not in this life you will submit to his lordship. Of course, if you don't, eventually you will. So the example of Herod, of course, is a negative one. That's a lesson to be learned. But what about the lesson from the Magi? People who were searching for wisdom, no doubt. Their understanding, I'm certain, was incomplete. They just didn't know enough about Messiah. But for whatever reason, they recognized him. How could it have been complete? Even the disciples routinely didn't understand when Jesus was with them. They came with a limited amount of knowledge, but the knowledge that they did have, they used to pursue the truth. And they bowed down in worship. You know, the search for wisdom and truth is honorable. We ought to be all about it. But what is especially important is when we encounter the truth, worship is essential. Bowing before the king is essential. The third is Mary. And the lesson from her life, my Mary is quite a contrast, isn't she, to the noise that's all around Jesus and his ministry. Whether it's the noise of the disciples who were routinely misunderstanding, and maybe it sounds critical, but asking silly questions. Or whether or not it was his critics who were constantly trying to trap him. There were words, 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 noise, noise, noise. And what is Mary? 
She quietly treasures things in her heart. She contemplates, she meditates on what has been revealed to her. I wonder if we're full of noise sometimes. I wonder if we need to stop more than we do, (laughs) to be silent, to treasure what has been revealed, to admit we don't fully understand, and to ask God to continue to reveal himself to us. Surely that's, that's the process that a true Christ follower should follow. A famous English poet that I'm sure many of you know, if not all of you, was T.S. Eliot. He said something that strikes me as similar to the theme I'm trying to get out with Mary. He said this, where can the world be found? In other words, the essence of all things. Where can the world be found? Where will the word resound? His answer, not here. There's not enough silence. I wonder if one of the most important ingredients that's missing in our life is silence. Mary watched, listened, and treasured as a quiet mother what God was doing. The third group of people in this response to Jesus, of course, are the two saints. The two saints, Simeon and Anna. The Messiah was revealed to them, and they were patiently waiting for the Messiah with eyes wide open. And because they were patiently waiting and in prayer with eyes wide open, God allowed them to see what no one else could see. I also wonder what Simeon and Anna really understood. Remember, they didn't have the Gospels yet. They didn't have the miracle stories of Jesus. They didn't have the words of St. John as he opens his Gospel when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that this Word was with God and that this Word was God. They didn't know that. But they waited patiently. And God revealed the Messiah. I wonder... When Simeon held the Christ child in his arms, did he ever think for a moment, my Lord and my God, the creator? That's what John told us. He was with God, he was God, and he created all things that came into being. It's obvious that our response should not be Herod. It ought to be the response of the others. Like the Magi, we should worship the king. The greatest news that ever dawned on humanity. Like Mary, we should wait quietly 
Not always talking, not always telling people what we know, but waiting quietly and treasuring the revelation that God has given us. And like Anna and Simeon, wait patiently with our eyes wide open in faith. In just a moment, our our band is going to sing a song for us that captures something of the essence of God in the person of Jesus Christ being the Lord of the universe. I want to read you just a few of the words as, as we prepare for this song, which is an act of worship. God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark, fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, think of the Psalms. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made. Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. As you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Where you lost your life, so I could find it here. If you left the grave behind, you so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've done. Every part designed in a work of art called love. If you gladly chose to surrender, so will I. I can see your heart in eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to love, then so will I. I think that's the appropriate response to Christ the King. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you that as the writer of the book of Hebrews said, you walked in our shoes, you suffered every temptation and every trial as we have, and yet you walked without sin. And because of that, Lord, you're our eternal great high priest, the one who came as a child, the one who died on the cross, the one who was raised again. And the promise is, if we follow you, that lowly baby in a manger, we too will inherit eternal life. What a blessing, Lord. What a delight it is to call you our Savior, our Master, and our Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.